Good morning. Lovely. <clears throat> All right. Um, I'm sorry to interfere with your lovely... Actually, I'm not. I just wanted to just say that, whatever. But anyway, <laughs> sorry for interfering with your conversations. But we've got work to do. Um, we've got a lot to cover this morning. We, as a church, have been in the... Um, studying the letter Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. And this Sunday, I think it's week nine or 10. I'm not sure. Doesn't matter. But what matters is we're going to have a great time look at, look at, looking at some, some juicy, meaty content, um, I like to call it. All right. So, oh, by the way, if you're new, my name's Obed. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, and yeah, thanks for deciding to dedicate this part of your Sunday to gathering with us. And so yeah, grab your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, and this week we're going to be looking at verses 15 through to 24, verses 15 through to 24. As always, we love and desire to honor God's Word, and one of the ways we do that is to stand for the reading of it. And so if you could do that, that would be great. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 24 reads, To give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Wow. Woo, let's pray. We're going to need it. All right, God, <laughs> thank you so much for this time. And yes, we do need you this morning. Um, I know and I'm confident um, that you will speak and change people beyond what I shared this morning. You are actively at work through your spirit, through the preaching of your word um, in this moment. And so, God, we look to you and we rely on you and your work through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, have a seat. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at this passage, and this passage is going to help us um, answer two questions. The first question is, why does God keep his promises? And the last question is, what is the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of living a good life and a moral life? And so there are the two questions this passage it's going to help us answer this morning. And so the first question is, why does God keep his promises? Why does God keep his promises? Look at verses 15 and 16 again. It says, um, Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one announces it or adds to it once it has been ratified. 
Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offsprings, who is Christ. And so to understand this verse, we have to, um, and the rest of the passage, we have to do two things. The first thing we have to do um, is look back at the previous verses and then go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And so we're going to be everywhere this morning, all right? We're going to be like, there's a lot of content to cover and there's a lot of scripture to read. And so first, let's look at um, what we've covered so far in chapter 3. As you know, Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul to address a major issue amongst some church members in the ancient city of Galatia. Um, What was happening was, is that they were being deceived um, to believe that becoming a Christian starts with trusting Jesus, um, but then what you have to do um, is do something, um, uh, adhere to the law to sustain your salvation. And so Paul writes this letter, to them to warn them that there is no way you can become a complete sanctified Christian, a child of Abraham, and enjoy the promises of the Spirit if you are living by what? Works of the law instead of by faith in Christ. John Piper, well-known preacher, author, says this, anyone who takes the gracious roadwork track of the law on which the locomotive of the Spirit is pulling us to glory in the Pullman car of faith, and it lifts that truck up on end and turns it into a ladder on which to climb to heaven by works. The person who does that with God's law is under the law's own curse. That's a brilliant picture. Like, you've got a train track, and, you know, we're supposed to be relying on Christ as our engine. But if we switch that train track and turn it into a ladder by which we try to get to God, um, we're in a lot of trouble. And in a room of this size, there is a chance that some of you are doing just that. You are relying on your own efforts. You're relying on your own performance in order to gain or sustain God's approval. In verse 13, if you remember from last week, the Apostle Paul explains that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then in verse 14, Um, Paul states that the result of Christ's redeeming work, look at verse 14, is so that in Christ Jesus, a blessing of Abraham, a blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so looking forward at verses 15 and 16, what Paul begins to do now is that that he intentionally focuses and kind of wants to unpack more of the blessing of Abraham. Look at verse 15. He says this, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. FYI, right, um, the blessing of Abraham, um, if you look at the word covenant there, it relates. It's kind of interchangeable with the blessing of Abraham. And the blessing of Abraham is related to the covenant God made with Abraham, which is commonly known as the Abrahamic covenant. Everybody say Abrahamic covenant. Okay, you're going to need to remember that. When I was at seminary, and I have to confess, we had a class based, several classes based on the Abrahamic covenant, and I slept through most of the classes, okay? I was like, gosh, I'm so tired. I think we had our first kid, and that was my excuse, but I hope you don't do the same, all right? And I hope you listen attentively to it because it's really, really important. And so the Abrahamic covenant. So what Paul is saying here in verse 15 is that just as some legal contracts cannot be retroactively invalidated or modified, so too the blessings God promised to Abraham given through a divine covenant will always stay the same. They can't be changed in any way, shape, or form. And so what The question we want to explore is, what is this promise or covenant um, God made with Abraham? Um, What are the blessings God promised to Abraham that were given through this covenant that cannot be changed? And so to help us answer these questions, what do we have to do? 
we have to go back to the book of Genesis and do a quick study of the Abrahamic covenant. Who's going to stay awake for it? We shall see. All right, book of Genesis. Genesis 12, let's start there. And so in Genesis 12, what's happening is that God calls um, Abraham. He was known there as Abram. And he calls him to leave his country, to leave his family and his father's house. And he um, calls him to travel to a land, this promised promised land um, that God wants to give him and his descendants. With this calling, God promised to bless him, to bless Abraham. Um, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3 reads, here's the um, covenant God made with him and the promise. God says to him, I will make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This passage is basically the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant is communicated in several other passages in the book of Genesis, but this is the first time it appears in the Bible. And as you can see, the covenant or the promises God made with Abraham is marked by a promise of a land, descendants, and a blessing. After this encounter with God, several years passed by and Abraham is yet to receive all of these blessings. In Genesis 15, we find Abraham struggling to believe that God will actually fulfill these promises. And he's doubting God because him and his wife, Sarah, remain childless. They have no children to inherit this promise. And this for them back then was a major issue because in the ancient Near Eastern context, having an heir was important for maintaining your lineage and inheritance. In response to Abraham's doubt, God meets with him, takes him outside, and tells him to look up at the stars. Look at Genesis 15, verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, Look, Abraham, toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then, if you are able to number them, then he said to him, God says to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. God is reinstating the promise and the covenant he's made with Abraham. How does Abraham respond to God's promise to give him numerous descendants, even though he remains childless in his old age? Look at Genesis 15, verse verse 6. And it, it says, And he that is Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Notice that Abraham's faith is acknowledged as the basis of his righteousness, not his works. Later in Genesis 15, God confirms this covenant with an animal sacrifice. Back then, if you wanted to confirm an oath or a covenant with someone, what you would do is get some animals, cut them in half, and place them in two rows. Look at Genesis 15:9, verse 10. I'm, I'm sorry, 15, 9 and 10. God said to him, to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he, Abraham, brought him all these, and what he did was he cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, 
but he did not cut the birds in half. What would happen next is that the two people, listen carefully, involved in the covenant would then walk through these sacrifices. This all seems very strange to us. Bet you're thinking, my goodness, I came to church on a Sunday, and the guy on the front is talking about cutting animals in half. This seems strange to us. But back then, that was how they would sign a covenant. It was a very graphic way of those entering a covenant saying, if I break this agreement, may I be cut up and cut off. I deserve to die just like these animals did. And what's fascinating about the covenant between God and Abraham is that Abraham never walked between the animal halves. Genesis 15, 12 says that Abraham fell into a deep sleep and only God passed between the pieces. What this means is that God is the one that made the covenant with Abraham. Abraham had nothing to do with it. In other words, God did it based on his grace, not Abraham's works. Tim Keller says this, the promise by God to Abraham is a covenantal promise. And it is a covenant that relies in no way on Abraham, but only on God. And so why does Paul bring up the topic of the Abrahamic covenant at this point of his letter to the Galatians? First, he wants them to know that God's promise to bless all the nations through Abraham was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is from the lineage of Abraham. Look at Galatians verse three, um, chapter 3, verse 16 again. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Here, Paul specifically mentions that the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, not offsprings, meaning a single descendant, and then he identifies this offspring as Jesus Christ. This is how the part of the covenant where God promises that through Abraham's lineage, all families of the earth shall be blessed. This is how that part of the covenant is fulfilled. Jesus Christ is the means by which the Abrahamic covenant's blessings extend to the entire world. The second reason why Paul brings up the topic of the Abrahamic covenant is to emphasize his point that we are accepted by God by faith alone in Christ alone and not by adherence to the law. Look at verse 17 of Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make a promise void. In other words, when God gave Abraham's descendants the laws through Moses, God didn't say to them, Hey, people of Israel, I know I promised your father Abraham land and all of these blessings, but I will only give it to you if you perfectly obey my laws. God didn't say that. The law, which was given 430 years after the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, didn't cancel out the promises. 
God remained faithful to his promises. Look at um, Galatians 3 verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul is saying that the blessings of the covenant, including the inheritance of the land and spiritual blessings, were given as a promise, not as a result of of observing the law. In other words, the principle is that the very concepts of promise and law are mutually exclusive. If I give you something, think about it, if I give you something because of what I have promised you, it is not because of your performance. But if I give you something because of what you have done, it is not because of a promise. Tim Keller again says, Paul is adamant. Either something comes by grace or works. Either it comes because of the giver's promise or the receiver's performance. It is neither one or the other. And when we talk about being saved, it has nothing to do with what you have done, but everything to do with what God has done for you in Christ. And some of you are like, this sounds similar to last week's sermon. Galatians does an amazing job reminding all of us over and over and over again from different vantage points of the importance of recognizing God's work to save you. I have three kids who are incredible, all right? Love my kids sometimes. <laughs> They're awesome. One of the things Eleanor and I have realized is that some of the things that are important to us, like, hey, don't punch your sister or don't do all these things. We have to over and over and over again tell them the same thing. Instruct them of the same thing. And the reason we have to do that is because, yes, it's important, but repetition is the key to learning and grasping something. And so when we open the book of Galatians, and we decide to study the book of Galatians, you, Christian, are going to be hearing over and over and over and over and over again that your salvation, your justification has nothing to do with you, but it has everything to do with the God that has saved you. And that is appropriate, and we need to hear it over and over again. We need to hear the gospel and preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over and over again. Do you know why? Because we have a tendency to try and contribute to our justification and salvation. Let's not forget that the Apostle Paul, what he's doing right now with this letter is that he is confronting some of the church members in Galatia and they've been deceived to thinking that you can start the Christian life by faith but you complete it yourself by works of the law. And so the reason why Paul brings up the Abrahamic covenant is to emphasize that the blessings given to Abraham that are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ are inherited through faith, not through the law. Just as with Abraham, God keeps his promises not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who he is and what he has accomplished for us in Christ. Our role is to simply trust in what God has already done. And this truth is so freeing, isn't it? It frees us from trying to earn God's favor 
and it encourages us to live by faith in the one who is faithful to fulfill all he has promised us. All of God's promises, all of God's promises, Christian, are yes and amen in Christ. And so, Christian, through the finished work of Jesus and our justification by faith in him, remember that someone who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've been given incredible promises by God. In Christ, Christian, listen to me, Christian. In Christ, Christian, God promises to grant you eternal life, which is an endless future with him beyond the constraints of this world. In Christ, Christian, God promises to forgive your sins completely and offers you a fresh start with every act of repentance. In Christ, Christian, God promises to credit you with the righteousness of Christ. And so when God looks at you, he looks at you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In Christ, Christian, God promises to provide you with unlimited access to his presence. This means that whenever... How many times you need, you can boldly access the throne of God's grace. In Christ, Christian, one day you will be raised up in a glorified body, free from the limitations of mortality just as Christ was raised. In Christ, Christians. God promises to ad advocate for you through Jesus who intercedes for you at the right hand of the Father. In Christ, Christian, God promises to give you victory over sin and death so that you can live in the triumph of the resurrection. God will meet all your needs according to his riches in glory. That doesn't mean he's going to give you material stuff. Like, my God is rich. Give me that house. Give me that car. No, like God has promised to give you, meet all of your needs. God has also promised never to leave you or forsake you. This one is very relevant to me. Um, when I was um, well, um, two years old, my mom moved. Uh, I was born in Ghana, West Africa. Um, and so um, when I was two years old, my mom left um, Ghana because she got a visa to the UK and moved there. And so I was left with my grandma. And one of the most, um, one of the memories I have of this experience was saying goodbye to my mom at the airport. I remember being at the airport in Ghana and seeing my mom get on the plane and fly. And I mean, that memory, it's so vivid for me. People will come and go whether they're parents or brothers or sisters or whoever, people will come and go. But Christian, God has promised that he'll never leave you or forsake you. And so my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, these promises and many more are yours, not because of what you've done, but because of his great love for you, these aren't just nice ideas. They are rock-solid truths you can stand on no matter what life throws your way. And so, I wonder this. I wonder how 
understanding that your justification comes by faith in Christ, independent of your good works, will change the way you live. Are there areas in your life where you're striving to earn what God has freely given you and promised to give you? How can you rest more fully in the promise-keeping nature of God? Paul's letter to the Galatians is clear that faith in Jesus is the only way we get right with God. It's not about our own good behavior. Yet, this is a very interesting idea and concept because... It raises an important question. And that question is, what place do God's commands have in our lives? What do God, how do God's laws correlate and align with his promises? And this is a question Paul will address and we're going to look at. And so first, we looked at why does God keep his promises. Second, we're going to look at what's the purpose of the law. Look at verse 19 of Galatians 3. Paul says this. He's like, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offering offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The law was given by angels, given through Moses to highlight transgressions. This law was like a big, clear mirror held up to show humanity their sinfulness and need for a savior until the promised offspring, Jesus Christ, came. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God, Paul asks? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. This statement implies that the law is not opposed to the promises, but the problem with the law is it simply cannot accomplish what the promise can and that is to provide life and righteousness. Look at verse 22. But the scripture imprisons everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here, Paul is saying that the law reveals this universal bondage to sin. It does not provide a way out of this condition. Instead, it prepares the way for the promise which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and received through faith, not by works of the law. In verses 23 and 24, what Paul does is that he uses two metaphors to characterize the way the law works in a Christian's life. First, Paul points out that the law is like a God. Look at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so here, the Greek words for held captive and imprisoned mean to be protected by military guards. Second, Paul describes the law as a guardian or a schoolmaster. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Since no one can keep the law, then what is the purpose of the law? Purpose of the law is to function as a guardian, as a schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ so that we would be justified by faith, not by adherence to the law. I'm going to read you a long quote from John Stott, who is, you know, pastor in England. And he does a really good job helping us understand what the law is about. It's not going to be up on the screen, so just listen to me, okay? Read it. He says this, After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? Simply because he had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. 
The purpose of the law was to lift the lid of man's respectability and disclose what he is really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to, um, revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear, and it is only against the dark background of sin that the gospel shines forth. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. Trying to get God's approval by just following his rules, teaches us that we need something more. When we understand this and accept Christ as our Savior, we've really learned what the law was trying to teach us all along. The law served as our guide until we embraced faith in Christ. And so, if you're a Christian, does that mean you get rid of the law and view it as irrelevant? Let, let me just unpack that a little bit more. So we just talked about the, the, the purpose of the law is to show us that we are sinful and we need a savior. And so, as soon as we realize this and we look to Christ and say, Christ, I'm unable to follow the law, therefore I need you to make, you make me right before God, does that mean we don't need the law? Does that mean we live how we want? Absolutely not. As Christians... We are called to live godly lives. <laughs> We're called to live lives that reflect the life of Christ. Although no one can be perfect like God, the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts and helps us glorify God in our lives. Tim Keller says this, The gospel means that we no longer obey the law out of fear of rejection and hope of salvation by performance. But when we grasp salvation by promise, our hearts are filled with gratitude and a desire to please and be like our Savior, and the way to do that is through obeying the law. And so what this means is that, Christian, you are still expected to live according to God's ways. The only difference is the motivation. You are not doing it to gain God's approval but you are doing it out of gratitude for what God has done for you. <laughs> the hole in our holiness. You're like, what is that? The Hole in Our Holiness is a book by Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor, author. 
And this book does this. It discusses the importance of personal holiness and the struggle many Christians have in understanding it and living it out. The book emphasizes that holiness is both expected of believers and is a result of God's work in us through Christ. Um, Listen to what he says here. He says this. Kevin DeYoung says this. I have a growing concern that younger evangelicals, maybe older as well, do not take seriously the Bible's call to personal holiness. We are too at peace with worldliness in our homes, too at ease with sin in our lives, too content with spiritual immaturity in our churches. My fear is that as we rightly celebrate and in some quarters rediscover all that Christ saved us from, we give little thought and make little effort concerning all that Christ saved us to. This quote by Kevin DeYoung touches on the theme of licentiousness. Although he does not use the term directly, Licentiousness is a term that refers to a lack of moral restraint, especially in regards to sexual conduct, often arising from a misunderstanding or misuse of the concept of freedom in the gospel. It's the idea, okay, that since grace abounds, Where sin increases, Romans 5.20, a person can continue sinning under the guise that it will only result in more grace. In other words, I am saved by grace alone. And grace abounds. And so when I sin, I know I'm going to experience grace because God will forgive me. So as a result, I'm just going to live how I want. In other words, licentiousness is thinking that because Jesus has done everything needed to follow God's law and we're made right with God by trusting in him, we can do whatever we want even if it goes against what God says is right. In our passage for today, Paul has been arguing against a legalistic approach to the law. He's been emphasizing that the inheritance promised to Abraham comes by promise and not by the law. However, when he does this, he's not advocating for licentious living. That's why he says that the law has a vital role as a guardian or tutor to lead us to Christ after which faith continues to guide us in living a life that pleases God. In other words, even though trusting in Jesus is what makes us right with God, God still wants us to live good lives. And I know some of you are like, oh gosh, What am I doing here? Is this church or is this like this cult? Because the problem is every time we talk, we love grace, don't we? We love grace and justification and yes, we should. But we get really uncomfortable when we start exploring what it means to actually live in obedience to the God that has called us. And I get it, like there's been abuse on both sides. There has been. But we need to recognize that, yes, we have been saved by grace. That doesn't mean we live how we want. What that means is that we... Uh, It's the motivation. We are not living in order to gain God's love, but we are living and obeying God out of his love for us. 
And so, Christian, let the knowledge that you are saved by faith fuel a vibrant prayer life as it's a direct line of communication with the God who loves you. May you serve others with joy, but when you do, view it as a response to the grace you've received, not as a means to earn God's favor. Christian, may you give generously of your time, talents, and resources, because when you do, you're reflecting the generosity God has shown you through his Son. Christian, may you strive to forgive those who have hurt you. Let go of grudges, let go of bitterness, because you have been forgiven by God. Christian, may you pursue purity in your thoughts and actions, in what you watch and what you expose yourself to, recognizing that because of what God has done for you, out of joy and satisfaction in who he is, may you live a life of purity. Christian, may you invest in community and fellowship with other believers. May you recognize that you are a part of a family that shares the same faith and foundation. And so, Christian, may you share your faith story with others. May you share your testimony, not out of obligation, not out of, oh, I need to share it because if I don't, God is going to just smite me. No, But may you share the gospel with those who need to hear it because you have been a recipient of what they need, and that is a relationship with God. And so how are you living? How are you living, Christian? Are you living a life that is driven by the gospel and what God has done for you. And if you are, are you allowing that to motivate you to live a life that glorifies God? Or have you allowed grace, just grace, it's all about grace, So I'm just going to live how I want. And so where are you at? How are you living? May God speak to you this week. And may he challenge you to stop living for yourselves and start living for him for real. He is a good and gracious God and calls us to himself so that we can represent him in this world. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through to 4 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so church, let's walk Let's trust God so that he may empower us to live in that newness of life. Let's pray. God, you are so good and so gracious. Thank you that all of your promises that we are often exposed to in your word 
All of those promises are yes and amen. In you, we have access to your fullness and your riches, and you provide us with everything we need for life and godliness. And so, God, as we continue to meditate on the gospel and your grace, I ask that we would, as a result of what you've done for us, we would truly desire and strive to live lives that please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so this Sunday, we're going to be observing and celebrating, participating in communion. We've asked the question, why does God keep his promises? And we've seen that his faithfulness isn't dependent on our actions. God's promises are kept because of his unwavering love and the work finished by Christ on the cross. And we've also asked the question of what's the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of living a good life? And we've discovered that the law is a mirror and reflects our need for a savior. It is not the means of our salvation, but points us to the one who is Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we celebrate communion, as we take the bread which is symbolic of the body of Christ broken for us and the cup which represents his blood shed for our forgiveness of sins. Let us remember that these elements signify the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises and the purpose of the law. And so if you're here and you are exploring Christianity and you're searching and you haven't made a commitment to follow Jesus, this is what we would like for you to do. We just simply, um, we're thankful that you are here. But we ask that in this moment, you would not participate in communion, but you would simply observe it. For those of us taking part in communion, as you hold the bread and the cup, let's do this. Let's ponder and let's think about all that God has done for us. And let's celebrate the beautiful truth that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Let's embrace the grace that frees us from the penalty of the law and leads us into a promise of eternal life. Promise God made and has kept through Jesus Christ. Let's celebrate communion.